This is case one from a collection called the Denkoloku, Transmission of the Lamp. Case is called Shakyamuni Buddha. The main case. Shakyamuni Buddha realized enlightenment on seeing the morning star. He said, I and all being on earth together attain enlightenment at the same time. Kajan's Commentary Shakyamuni left his palace one night when he was 19 years old and shaved off his hair. After that, he spent six years absorbed in various ascetic practices. Subsequently, he sat on an indestructible seat, so immovable that there were cobwebs in his eyebrows, a bird's nest in his head, and reeds growing up through his sitting mat. Thus, he sat for six years. In his 30th year, on the morning of December 8th, he was suddenly enlightened when the morning star appeared. Then he spoke the foregoing words, his first lion roar. After that, he spent 49 years helping others by teaching, never staying in seclusion. With just one robe and one bowl, he lacked nothing. Kazan's verse. One branch stands out on the old apricot tree. Thorns come forth at the same time. So this collection, the Denkoloku, the transmission of the lamp, has 51 cases, short biographies of Buddhist teachers, all the way from Shakyamuni until, from the Buddha until Ejo, who was Dogen's successor, moving from India to China to Japan. And this collection was compiled by Keizan Jokin, 13th-14th century Japanese Zen teacher, who is actually considered uh, this, the second founder of the Japanese Soto school after Dogen. Actually, Dogen is more famous, and Keizan was uh, the fourth in succession after. Dogen. Dogen is known as Koso, which means the highest patriarch, and Keizan is known as Taiso, which means the great patriarch. And I found this uh, short writing from Professor uh, Masunaga, actually passed away in 1981, so a recent uh, Zen teacher and a scholar uh, in Japan, and talked about these two, the two founders of the Japanese Soto School, and he says, as, as regards to basic thought on Buddhism and faith in the Buddha, Dogen and Keizan were the same, but they differed in personality and environment. Dogen was rigorous and stern, but Keizan was mild and gentle. And he said, generally, we need two kinds of activities in spiritual practice. On one hand, we must deepen our own experience, and on the other hand, we must lead others to the depth of their experience. We must let them enjoy the knowledge of the law of, or the Dharma, the law of the Buddha, and the practice of Zen. Keizan was the right person to lead others to this joy. He was the friend of the common people. He met everything and everyone with warm heart and shared the joy of others. These are the characteristics of a true spiritual person.
the Soto Zen was established by the stern fatherly character of Dogen and the compassionate motherly character of Keizan. The Soto sect was founded by Dogen, but consolidated by Keizan. The profound philosophy of the Soto Zen sect was built up by Dogen and clearly explained by Keizan. Dogen educated few disciples, Keizan profited the multitudes. In the Soto sect, the two patriarchs are compared to two wheels of a cult, for if one is lacking, the others will be of no use to, in fulfilling the purpose. And I wanted to bring it up because I find it relevant to how we maintain, or how we need to maintain, right effort in terms of practice. Well, actually in terms of everyday life, not just practice, right? To, as in the words of Dogen, to know how to not take it lightly and also not to give it weight. Right? To, not, to know how to flow, how to move while maintaining strong discipline, whether it's practice, what we call practice, whether it's everyday life, whether it's a job, to know how to live, actually, which connects very much to what the Buddha wake, woke up to, or what we have to wake up to. So this is the case, this is case one from this collection, the transmission of the lamp, and the lamp is the Buddha's realization, which has been transmitted and is being transmitted by us, has been transmitted to us. And our responsibility is to look into it and keep that going forward to future generations. And case one begins with the Buddha. I want to bring it up also because it was a few days ago, December 8th, was the day of the Buddha's realization. And based on oral tradition at that time, and then later on, those traditions became written history. So based on that and scholarly research, there seemed to be a general agreement about three significant events of the Buddha's life. His birth, the day of his complete enlightenment, December 8th, and his death. And of these three events, this day of his enlightenment, December 8th, is actually of monumental importance and highly relevant to every Buddhist practitioner. And that moment in time marks the inception of what we call Buddhist practice or Buddhism. And all Buddhist traditions are traced back to that day 2,500 years ago when Shakyamuni was awakened. And that moment of awakening contains everything that happened up to then and everything that happened from that point on. Yet, it stands alone like an air-shattering roar of a lion, as in the words of Keza. And Keizan's right about that. Even though what the Buddha pointed out and explained in more than 360 gatherings over 49 years was not the same, and he's referring to all his talks, all his teachings at different places. And he said, 
the various stories, metaphors, and explanations did not go beyond the principle illustrated in the story of his, his enlightenment. In other words, everything he spoke about, although he spoke in different ways to different people, everything was about one single thing. About his awakening, actually about our awakening. Right? I and all beings at the same time attain realization. So, since this is the most significant moment or aspect of practice of all of us, it behooves us to inquire deeply into that. What was Shakyamuni awakened to? Was the Buddhism before the moment of his awakening? Not a historical question. What path was founded at the moment of his realization? And what is our responsibility as practitioners who walk and maintain this path? What does it mean for us today? It's also important to point out that although the Buddha is the central figure of the tradition, he's not venerated as an external deity he is also not worshipped as an all-encompassing God. It's a different kind of relationship with the central figure of the tradition. In the commentary, Kezan Zenchi sheds light on how we need to view enlightenment. And he says, So studying from all angles, penetrating in all ways, you should clarify, study and clarify the Buddha's enlightenment and your own enlightenment. I want you all to see this story closely and be able to explain it, he says, letting the explanation flow from your own heart, not borrowing from the words of another. Not borrowing from the words of another also means not living vicariously through somebody else's realization. In that case, it would be the Buddha to not borrow from his realization, but to understand how he practiced and to do the same and to realize what he realized. Otherwise, it becomes a study of history and that's not what we do. So Keizan Zenshi takes the story, out, the story of the Buddha out of its historical context and he puts it right in front of our face in the most relevant and intimate way possible. And he's saying that the only way to understand the Buddha's realization is through your own realization. Which simply means go nowhere else, be no one else, and raise the way-seeking mind, as we call bodhicitta, right here, right now. You know, as the saying goes, even Shakyamuni Buddha is only halfway there. All he can do at this point is just show, point the way. So he points, we practice. Right? His life, his, his realization, 
these teachings are examples for us to study, to look at, and to be fueled by, so we do the work we need to do. And so to raise the way-seeking mind, what does that mean? A way-seeking mind. What does it mean to seek? It means, first, to raise doubts. Doubts about any thought that seems to be Seemed only thoughts that seem to be clarifying, that seem to be verifying who we are, what the environment is, what reality is. Any concrete thought or any thought that seems to make things concrete and fixed and absolute, to look into that. To raise the way-seeking mind, to raise curiosity, doubt. Maybe I don't know. Maybe I, I have to look. Maybe I have to examine. Right? Any thought that is verifying who I think I am. Well, for example, I'm successful. I'm a failure. I'm smart. I'm stupid. I'm wealthy. I'm poor. I'm enlightened. I'm deluded. Any of those thoughts, I am what comes next. And it varies from each person, right? From person to person, from each of us. And also, affirmation is negation, right? If I say I am this, I am not that. Or if I say I am not that, I am this. Either way, when we do that, when we think this way, we create fixedness in a reality that is never fixed. And that's not a Buddhism, it's just the way it is. Reality is just not fixed. We all, in a way, know that. But there's a gap. There's a gap between what we intimately know or what we know from birth and how we have constructed our lives. So we have to look into that gap and go back to knowledge at birth rather than accumulated knowledge. And then examine that. What does it mean? What did we know? What do we know? Where did it go? How did we go back to that? Typically, we find ourselves in one side of dualities, right? Either I'm either this or that. If I'm not that, I must be this. If I'm not enlightened, I must be deluded. If I'm not successful, I must be failing in something. So we have to look at how deeply we trust that. You know, and how do we convince each other, actually, of this fixedness? Of our abilities or inabilities? My wife, is, she's a, a teacher, a special education teacher, and she teaches um, autism class. And uh, she was saying the other day that one of the kids she was working with, she was trying to help him read something, and he, and, uh, he looked at her and said, well, I cannot read that. I'm autistic. 
And then she said, no, I'm not going to accept that. Let's try again. Let's do it again and again. And eventually he was able to do that. And he was quite happy about that. But he hears that at home because at home, that's, that's what he gets. You are autistic, so you are limited. And here is what you can do. Here's what you cannot do. Right? And this is an ex extreme example, but it, there is a very important point there for us. You know, what have we heard? What are we hearing? And what have we convinced ourselves about ourselves to be true? And we can expand that to anything, right? Because that's how we live. That's how we think. So to raise the question or to even, even raise the um, possibility that maybe I don't know whether it's limitations or whether it's things I think I can do. Let me put down the assumptions and examine and study. Is there anything that's lacking? Is there anything that's missing? Is there anywhere else I can be? Is there anywhere else I need to be right now? Kezan said in the commentary, with just one robe and one bowl, he lacked nothing, referring to the Buddha as an example for all of us. He did not lack anything as we do not lack anything whether he had the robe and ball or not. He just happened to have a robe and a, one robe and one ball. With that, he lacked nothing. Without that, he was complete as well. And the difference, all of us lack nothing. The difference lies in recognizing this on a personal level through awakening. In other words, to awaken to inner completion. Right here, right now, at this moment. And we may understand that. You know, we hear that, especially when, if you've been around in practice for a while, you hear that a lot. We, you are complete, you're a Buddha, you true nature, or whatever words we use. And it's easy to understand the word. But the words have nothing to do with the Buddha's realization. Nothing at all. The words are the words and the experience is the experience. And the words can do one thing. They can lead, they can point us to the practice. Maybe encourage us. right? Guide us in the right direction. All that is good. But ultimately... We have to do what the Buddha did. Not in the same way he did it. Because that was 2,500 years ago. That's not what's relevant. What's relevant is the determination. What's relevant is the bodhicitta. Raising the way-seeking mind. Doubting. And at the same time, trusting. That's always relevant. That's always, that's timeless, essentially. And until we do that, until we recognize this on an experiential level, 
we just keep turning the wheel of samsara, the wheel of suffering. And the Buddha actually talked about that in what he called the eight worldly conditions. And how quickly we, we create, how, how we turn the wheel of samsara using those. And these are gain and loss, pleasure and pain, recognition, insignificance, and praise and blame. We want to gain and we try to avoid loss. We want pleasure, we try to avoid pain. We want recognition, trying to avoid insignificance. Want to be praised, try to avoid being criticized, belittled, blamed. Right? So we know very well how it feels, how it is to, to live within those dualities. We know what we prefer and what we want to run away from. And the question is, where do you find yourself on those dualities? And when you do recognize yourself on those dualities, how do you move forward from there? How do you little by little free yourself from that so you can actually, so we can actually venture out away from the rigidity of this kind of thinking? of this mental agony that we create using this way of thinking. Because you know, the process of awakening to what we really are begins with doubting what we think we are. And before we can see reality as it is, we have to question the assumptions or assumptions about reality. So that's the first step. That's, the, that's what the Buddha did. He, he grew up, as most of you know, as a prince, right? as the son of a king, having all his needs met. Right? He, was, he grew up with lots of indulgence. And at some point, he began to doubt that. Without getting into the story of how or what happened, the, the more important point in that is that he doubted whether or not this can actually or that this can lead to fulfillment to to true contentment or to contentment that is not dependent on external conditions or to contentment without fear of losing what is providing that contentment. So at some point, although he was surrounded with everything he needed, at some point, it's as if the veil lifted a little bit, right? And he got a glimpse of, wait a minute, there's something off here. You know, maybe I'm not seeing the full picture. Maybe I am... Maybe what's going on is distracting me from seeing what's really going on. Remember the Truman Show? Some of you maybe remember that old movie where this character, right, it was a, actually a, a production, right, a TV production, like a reality TV, where this character, right, had everything set up and in a make-believe reality, world, city, 
And at some point, and it was all within a big dome, and at some point, uh, a light projector fell down and kind of from the sky, right? And he really looked at it. What's going on here? And very quickly, there's a cleaning crew that came by and very quickly distracted him from seeing this and got his attention to look, to, to go elsewhere. So he forgets that. It's a little bit like that. You know, and then actually that, from that moment on, on some other things that happened, he began to doubt what was going on. And in a way, we have to do the same. We have to start to doubt. Not to check out, not to go somewhere else, but to, to change the way we look at what's going on. Or at the one that is looking at what's going on. So he raised doubts. And then when he was young, 19 years old, he decided to renounce, leave it all behind, to leave his wife, to leave his baby, young kid, son. So at night, middle of the night, he got up, kissed them goodnight, they were asleep, shaved his head, and he left. He left the palace. And this is also what we need to be doing. To open up the hand, the grasping hand that is holding on to our identities, holding on to our possessions, holding on to whatever it is that we are holding on to. To open up that hand and to venture out. And venturing out is, can be painful. It is painful. There is... Letting go. You know, so we use that analogy of venturing out. First, we open up the house, venture out maybe to the porch, right, run back inside. Then we venture out, we take a couple of steps down, we walk to the, maybe the grassy area, the backyard, then we run back inside to the familiar, warm feeling of, of being in the, in the house. And then the next day or the next month, we venture further. We go to the fence, and then maybe we go, we jump over the fence, and we start to venture out into the unknown, rather than maintain comfort within the unknown, within the known. We venture out to the unknown. And comfort is, it feels good, but there's, there's a danger in comfort. You know, it's, it has a numbing effect. Spiritually speaking, it has a numbing effect. It puts us to sleep. By design or not by design, it does that. So we have to recognize it. And be okay with being uncomfortable. Right? To be okay with that. Be curious. It's as simple as that. Be curious. Be alive. I want to look at what I don't know rather than walk around in circle within the known. So he ventured out and he spent six years. He lived with the ascetics for six years. Ascetic practices, there's still some of it going on in India these days. Maybe other parts of the world too. And they do all kinds of things that are beyond our comprehension, you know, there's 
they would maybe hold the hand up for 30 years until it completely withers, the arm straight up, and all kinds of other practices. The Buddha did not do that, but he did other things. For example, living on one grain of rice a day, drinking his own urine, and other things. And they, they do all that. He did all that. As seeing it as, as a possible or viable path to realization, to breaking through the shell, through realizing what is this all about. Right? So he did that, and it says that he was one of the best at it. Got to a point that you could see his spine from his front, from the stomach. And he did that, and he was fully devoted to it, right? He, was, he fully embraced a path before he got to a point of, of realizing that it doesn't work. Not because he did not do the best he could. Because he got to a point that he took it as far as possible. He almost died, actually. And there was a story about that, which we don't have to get into, how he came about that realization, and he decided to leave that behind as well. So he went from indulging, or being indulged, right? I mean, it was, he grew up like that, he was born like that. So he had all his needs met, he went from one extreme to another extreme of having hardly any needs met. Even what we consider basic needs, he took away. So he went from one extreme to another, realizing that neither one of those extremes work. Neither indulging nor deprivation. Right? It cannot lead to long-lasting contentment or bring to peace the fundamental question of our existence. So he left that behind. And then he sat, then he practiced for six years actually, and he sat by a big tree before he got into that, and he made this resolution. He said, though my skin, my nerves, and my bones shall waste away, and my lifeblood will go dry, I will not leave this seat until I have attained the highest wisdom, the supreme enlightenment that leads to everlasting contentment. So that was the week leading to his realization. Now he did not do that thinking in seven days, right? We think, well, Rohatsu, seven days, right? Eight days. Think we're going to do it eight days and then it ends at that time. He did not have a plan to sit for seven or eight days. We do. We have beginning and end, right? You know, there's a bell, there's a jikijitsu, tells us when to begin, when to end. What he did was different. He sat without a goal of, or specific time of attaining something. He sat for the purpose of observing. Single-minded observation. Can we do that? 
Can we do that while we have a Jiki Jitsu who is, who is doing the signals, by giving the signals of when to begin and when to end? Right? How is our Zazen? How is our practice? How do we practice? And he said that he meditated on his breathing in and breathing out. It was the eve of the full moon. During the first part of the night, many evil thoughts described as being like the evil god Mara and his army all crept into his mind. Thoughts of desire, craving, fear, and attachments arose. Well, we can identify with that, right? All kinds of thoughts come in and out. It says, yet Shakyamuni, or Siddhartha Gautama at that time, did not allow these thoughts to disturb his concentration. And Mara, Mara, Mara is the one who says, believe what you think. Just to kind of clarify, it's not the bad guy. Right? It's just in us, there is habitual uh, pattern or habitual energy that is habitual, that he's going to keep doing what he's doing and saying what he's saying. And in the case of the Buddha, the Mara came by and said, this is a waste of time, what are you doing here? You could be a king, you could rule the country, you could have beautiful women, you could have a lot of money, a lot of stuff. And the Buddha was not disturbed. He just kept sitting. And then at some point, based on the stories, at some point, Mara said, okay, let's say you realize whatever it is you think you're going to realize. Who's going to vouch for that? Who's going to say great job? Who's going to witness that? You're here by yourself. And then the Buddha touched the ground and said, this ground is my witness. I do not need, or what good is it to have anyone else Verified. I do not, there's no need for any other verification other than this ground. Now, can we say that? Can we feel that? When we have doubts, when we want to follow fears, when we want to follow our thoughts, can we come back to this ground that is supporting us right now? which without, we will not be able to see it, stand, or do anything. Can we see that ground as witnessing and verifying our existence? Verifying everything we need verified. Can we feel that support? Do we need to go elsewhere? Do we need to be someone else? Is it enough? It was enough at that time for the Buddha. And it is enough now, but do we see that it's enough? Do we feel it in our bones? Is the question. So after that, Mara left. The voices subsided. Voices in his head subsided. 
And he sat even more firmly and strengthened his determination to not be moved by anything that comes and goes. Thoughts, sensations, emotions, memories, anticipations. He sat with the intention to dive deeply into the fundamental question of the human existence and the inevitable predicament of living a life in this skin bag, as we say. He sat with the question, who am I? What is this? Who is the one that is subjected to sickness, old age, and death? He observed and observed and observed and he looked at it and he actually realized that what he considered as Siddhartha Gautama is unsubstantiated. He could not see, he could not verify what he knew as himself. Not because he didn't try, but because he looked at everything that he knew was verifying what he knows about himself, and he saw that this too is unsubstantiated. Simply unsubstantiated. And then from there he began to see that what he called himself is actually interconnected and co-arising with all other phenomena. That permeation, constant permeation, goes in all directions at all times. What we see as us is always permeating and connecting and connected to everything that we see as not us or as outside of us, be it another person or an object. Actually, science proves that. There is constant permeation. We always interpenetrate each other on a molecular, on a, on a tiny, tiny level. We do, we, this is happening all the time. Even what's solid is not solid. What seems solid is not solid. So he went from examining what he knows to be himself realizing that it's not, it's not substantiated, from there to realizing that, or to realize interpenetration, interconnection, or interdependent origination, as it is called in Buddhism, or in Sanskrit, pratitya samutpada. All things co-arise, subsist, and disintegrate within an infinite web of creation. Which means nothing exists unto itself. What he realized is what Einstein called an optical illusion. Einstein called the self an optical illusion. Optical illusion. The eye sees the self, or the, the, the eye, the, the ear, the mind, the nose, perceives the self to be fixed. But in reality, it is not. And that's the dichotomy. Here is what we see, and here is what is, here is what is. And to merge that dichotomy, right, to see that essentially there is no dichotomy, is realization. To see that it has always been this way, always will be this way. To see that the Buddha did not invent anything or start anything. 
He all, only, all he did is realize what we, as he said, everyone has that ability to realize because we're all of the same nature. It's not an option. We can dream. That's an option. But dreaming doesn't change reality. And when we wake up from a dream, reality is not born at that moment. It is always witnessing us while we are dreaming. So he went against the grain, as we need to do, against what we feel is true. And again, it's not, it's not easy, right? He went, he went against the wishes of his father. His father wanted him to be a, the next ruler. Against the expectations of his social status. Against his own habitual inner streams. And he trusted that there is another way to exist in this world. And with that trust, he was willing to go through a long process of investigation. A long process of investigation is not, you know, you go, you sit for a little while, that is not for me. Right? We try this, we try that, all kinds of, you know, smorgasbord, right? You know, try it, take a little bit of this, a little bit of that. It doesn't work. It doesn't work because we don't make a vow or, or we are not determined to see it through because we habitually go with our thoughts over and over and over again. And then we're surprised that we find ourselves walking around in circles, meeting the same streams, the same forces within us. So we have to be willing to, to look at our difficulties, at our challenges, at our lives in a different way. I was, I was talking about that with some people last week at the, at the end of Zazen. There was some movement at, at uh, Zendo, and I was telling people, we have to learn to meet uh, the pain and discomfort in Zazen in a different way. Because if, for example, if, if every time I itch, I scratch, then I am falling back into the same old pattern it wants this, I give it exactly what it wants the, the, the moment it wants it. Where's the growth? Where's the expansion in that? Right? We just stay in the loop. But what if I look at that each and then raise some level of curiosity? How else can I meet that each? How else can I meet that discomfort, that pain, that challenge in my life? Is there another way? Right? Because otherwise, the re and there is an itch that can never be scratched, essentially. And we keep scratching and scratching and scratching and it never goes away. Or even if it does go away for five minutes or five weeks, it comes back. So because we know that, and I really truly think we know that, I believe we know that, if we look deep inside, we know that what we do doesn't work. Habitually, what we do doesn't work. 
And so we have to change. And this is true for those who are beginning to practice today. And this is true for those who have been practicing for 40 or 50 years. It never ends. Because old patterns don't go anywhere. They don't go anywhere. Nor should they go anywhere. They're there. They come back in different ways. In fact, actually, the Buddha himself said that Mara came back at different times of his life disguised as a friend, as a buddy, to try again and again to destabilize him. And he was able to embrace Mara. Right? We have to learn from that. We have to learn from all aspects of ourselves, including our anger, including our sadness, or our despair, or whatever it is. We can take it in, embrace it, and learn from it, rather than reject and push it away and think that we have to kill something or reject something in us. Right? So we have to examine the way we sit. We have to examine our zazen. I think I have to wrap it up. Time flies. So the point of this, and I'm going to have to scroll forward here. Actually, what I'm going to do, I'm going to read something from the Dhammapada. The Buddha spoke about, uh, it's short, the Buddha spoke about uh, four levels of um, meditation. And, um, and in the last one, he said that after that, he said, this was my first successful breaking forth like a chick breaking out of its shell. And Eknath Eswaran, who actually wrote commentaries on the Dhammapada, said, this last quiet phrase is deadly. Our everyday life, the Buddha is suggesting, is lived within an eggshell. We have no more idea of what life is really like than a chicken has before it hatches. Excitement and depression, fortune and misfortune, pleasure and pain are storms in a tiny private shell-bound realm which we take to be the whole of existence. Yet, we can break out of this shell and enter a new world. For a moment, the Buddha draws aside the curtain of space and time and tells us what it is like to see into another dimension. It's beautifully put. And this is the Buddha's realization. All he does, all he's doing for us, is just pulling that curtain aside, suggesting to us, look, there is all that vastness. You're not what you think you are. You're not what you think you are. But it's going to take time. It's going to take determination. You have to embrace, wholeheartedly, embrace a practice. Don't call it anything. Who cares what you call it? That's secondary. You know, we don't sit in the cushion and say we call ourselves Buddhist. This, is, this doesn't matter. We embrace a practice of observation and discipline. Light-hearted discipline, but yet discipline. That's why I wanted to read what, that quote at the beginning, that we have to know how to maintain discipline. We have to understand right effort so we can sustain the practice over a long period of time. 
and learn to deal with the ups and downs of practice, of life, or not to be taken by that. So to break the shell, to break through the shell, You know, when the Buddha was about to die, he was surrounded by his disciples, right? And, and they were there, gathered, and around him, and sobbing, crying, you know, not knowing what to do, you know, and our leader, our spiritual guide is going to die. And then he looked at them and he said, what's wrong with you guys? It has never been about me. The Dharma is your light. The Dharma is your guide. Practice. You don't need me. You need to do the work. You need to practice. All I can do is show you what you need to do. Right? And it's so easy to get trapped in thinking there is that person or that path or that book or whatever it is. That will do it for me. But all those things can do is point. Point the way. He points, we practice. He points, we practice. Dogen said, there are fools who look upon themselves as if they were someone else. And there are wise people who regard others as themselves. Right? To see others as myself. To see all things as one. As the Buddha said after his realization, I and all beings together attain realization at the same time. To break through the shell of the ego. And to awaken to reality as it is. That's what it's about. That's what the practice is about. So if we can take one thing from that, it's determination. We fall down, we get up. Over and over and over and over again. No judgments. No overanalyzing it. No pointing, just practicing. Day in, day out. Because it's always available to all of us. What the Buddha realized is what we can realize at any given moment. So please, let's do that together. Let's encourage each other ourselves and each other, to stay on the path, to nurture the sacred fetus, as we call it. This is the womb of the Buddha, right here, in this beautiful temple. Thank you.